home is more than just a house. A home has emotion and memories. And it's a fundamental need for all people. A home should be a place that we can all retreat to when life gets hard. A place to find canopy from the rain. A canopy where we can keep our fire burning. Hi, I'm William Layton and host of the Talent Equals podcast. And today's guest is CEO Chris Hutchinson of Canopy. Now, Canopy are doing what we love here on the Talent Equals show. They're trying to solve hard problems which really help people in parts of their lives that matter by innovating with insurance, financial products, and technology. Canopy is looking to help the financial lives of their customers in a meaningful yet simple way. They're helping them find a home and financial stability. Chris is going to uncover some interesting facts about the rental market here in the UK, many I didn't know, share his experience of pivoting Canopy and his lessons learned from that, and what he's found difficult and successful while building the business and growing that team. I hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. And without further ado, I give you Chris Hutchinson of Canopy. Hi, Chris. Welcome to the Talent Equals podcast. Thanks for being here. Hi, Will. Lovely to join you. Thanks for having me on. Amazing. Well, Chris, really excited to get you on because you're the CEO of Canopy and we're doing a series of interviews where we're talking to fintechs, insurtechs who have at the heart of their business model something to do with purpose and something that benefits society in some meaningful way. And I must say your name came up to me through my research team because I'm... I dare say at 40 now. Yeah, I've admitted that. Uh, no, And I haven't actually been renting a property for a number of years. So when the team were talking about Canopy, they were talking about it from being renters themselves and knowing the pain that they feel about the rental market and some of the things that you are trying to alleviate with Canopy. So that's my <laughs> admission. And um Maybe now it's over to you. Can you tell us then what Canopy is, what pain you're addressing, why you've got purpose? Over to you, sir. I mean, it's, it's interesting, actually, just even on that initial point that you raised, I think a lot of us are no longer renters. Right? A lot of us have moved into home ownership, but actually we can still resonate with those dramas and pain points that were associated with renting because a lot of us have been renters in the past. So... I think, look, what a canopy, what are we? So we're an ecosystem. We exist for renters, letting agents and landlords to fix some of those traditional pain points that are associated with renting, but also to help somebody to improve their financial health while they live in a property. So I guess building on that in terms of our mission, so we know that renting is full of pain points. It's building, it's growing in terms of a demographic within the UK. Zupla House Price Index came out last week, suggesting 7.4% increase in the price of houses over the last year during the pandemic. What does that actually mean in real life? Well, it means more people are renting and they're going to be renting for longer because deposits and purchasing homes is getting harder and harder. So now really is the time to kind of address the gap, which is renters. And I think renters have always been the forgotten within society in some respects. We've fixed many challenges and problems with home ownership and getting people onto the property ladder, but always kind of previous generations have probably looked down on renting as some classic anecdotes, right? Paying somebody else's mortgage, why are you doing that? Or you couldn't possibly save for deposit if you're paying rent to somebody else. 
So I think adjusting and changing the way that we look at renting in the UK is something that's pretty needed. Um, you know, there's also around about some, some extra numbers, right? There's about 19 million renters within the UK, if you include private renters, social renters, and also students within the UK. So it's not a small number of people. It's a pretty significant size within the UK and addressing their needs or historically not addressing their needs. It's been a pretty big miss, I think, for a lot of us in, uh, in society. So I think this is interesting here because there's a lot of UK-centric components and we have international listeners here on Talent Equals. And maybe let's illuminate, first of all, there's a cultural thing in the UK, which is bricks and mortars are incredibly important. You buy a house as soon as you can, you get on the property ladder, renting is for mugs. It's like, you know, you don't do it if you can avoid it. And, you know, that started probably with Margaret Thatcher and the right to buy and that boom of the market. We don't have a lot of the protections here in the UK market that they have in the continent, right? Where it's a very different setup. So maybe you just want to illuminate that because I think, because what's also I'm hearing is you've got two customer groups here with Canopy. You've got the renters and you've also got the landlords. So let's unpick that together. Yeah, yeah. Look, you're completely right, Will, and you've actually kind of hit the nail on the head already with your question, to be honest, in a sense of, yeah, the UK is fairly unique within the global environment in the fact of a couple of things. So one is, yes, we typically do have an ambition to gain home ownership. And, and as you say, that's, that's been through generations. And renting has always been frowned upon. I think if you look to Europe, for example, typically Germany or France have sort of 60 to 65% of the market are renting. And actually home ownership isn't something that they've necessarily tended to gravitate towards. I think there's probably a, an understanding that actually renting's okay. What does it allow you to do? And there's an acceptance of what it allows you to do, which isn't accepted in the UK. So renting grants you the ability to live in a location that you probably couldn't afford to actually buy a property in, right? Think about those people who all live in Southwest London or around city centers. Probably couldn't afford to buy a house there, but you can certainly afford to rent. Equally, it affords you flexibility that you otherwise don't have with home ownership. It's expensive to get in and out of properties when you buy them. And it's a long-term gain, right? A long-term commitment. I think that's fine for somebody who is 45 or 50 and wanting to really settle down in a location. But when you're in your 20s, into your 30s, you want the flexibility to go through life changes, right? You want to go through being single and, and living with friends to then finding a partner, to then settling down and buying a dog. And you also need the flexibility to grow your career and live in areas that allow you to grow a career or a life that you want to live. So I think that's been probably accepted and appreciated in other parts of the world more than it has in the UK. So yeah, that is a pretty significant difference, to be honest with you. Yeah. And we also have some unique physical attributes to the UK, which is that we have a lack of land, a small land mass in comparison to population, some quirky planning and development components, maybe they have elsewhere about building on Greenbelt, which is right, I, in my, my opinion, but for that, we have a lack of housing stock. So there are also some practicalities, which also drive some of the traits that we have here. But I hear certainly like there's a whole cultural component, which absolutely, but that's changing. And so like, then you have landlords. So there's a lot of private landlords who are renting out properties. And, and so it's here in this mix where we get into some of the nuances where I suppose Canopy looks to address a problem, which is where You've got a deposit that you've got to pay to get in and you've got to get checked out. So would you just want to run like listeners through like what an average renter in the UK has to do 
to get a property and um, what a landlord has to look at as well. Yeah, sure. And again, a, a really lovely point, Will, which was how different that market in the UK is, right? So we are 50% of the market is mum and pop landlords, people who own one or two properties and they, and they let them out. The rest of the world typically is largely driven by larger institutional landlords. Within the UK, the institutional landlord market is growing. It's the fastest growing sector of the market, but it's still less than 5% of the overall housing stock. Whereas you look at Germany, you look at the US, and vast swathes of the housing stock are owned by a handful of large institutional investors. So yeah, it's very different. And even the way that actually we sell properties in the UK. So we obviously generally go through letting agents. Right? Typically, that's, that's how we address the market. But actually, again, the rest of Europe don't really understand that broker model. It's very different to how they sell properties. So um, yeah, that's, that's another difference. To pick up on your point, though, so you know, what are the pain points associated with renting? We've done a fair amount of research, obviously, as you can imagine, into those pain points. Our mission is to fix or at least try to solve a lot of them. So there's a huge amount, to be honest with you. Everything from the uncertainty that's involved at the start of the process. So actually, when you're looking to move into a new rental property for the very first time, trying to find the information to understand what do you do? How do you go about it? What comes next? What does the process look like to even get into a property is kind of fraught with uncertainty. Furthermore, how do I save for that deposit? You know, yes, you're not buying a house, but there's still a requirement when you move into a, a rental property to put down a month's deposit and and pay your first month rent up front. You know, there's still a significant outlay at the start, which is a pain point. You then have the contractual processes, right? The understandings between you and a landlord as you go forward and how do you communicate? How do you make sure you can do what you want to a property? How do you make that house your home is the old adage, but, but how do you do that when it's somebody else's property and different landlords will accept different things from their tenants? But even beyond that, you know, you're a sharer, right? The, a big one is sharers. You know, we see a lot of pain points associated with sharing in a sense that it's great to live with your mates, but who's going to put their name down on the bills? Who's going to be responsible for collecting the money? Are you going to have a joint savings account or a joint current account that you pay bills out of? And then collecting rent and bills from all of your mates suddenly becomes a really hard job. And friends asking for an extra week or two to pay when it's already gone out of your bank. You know, it's stress, it's stress, it's uncertainty at times that you just don't need it. And they're just a few examples of the pain points. And I'm sure most people on the call on the podcast will obviously understand a lot of pain points that are associated. The other thing that we find is more of a demographic pain point. So renters typically as a demographic are younger, right? That's not everybody, but typically as a demographic, they're between 18 and 35. And so actually they're in a different position in their lives. They're not as financially stable. A lot of them, I think the stat is about 35% of renters don't even have the savings to last one month of no income if they were to lose their job or be unable to work. And also around about 5 million renters within the UK are, are pretty much invisible to the financial services industry because they don't really have a credit history. And a lot of renters being young don't understand the requirements of credit and the importance of that, right? And the importance of, of having a, a credit score on whether they want to get a mobile phone or move into a property, you still need to have that credit score. So they're typically underserved as a demographic by financial services industries. And that 
doesn't lend well to them improving their financial position and, and ultimately working towards their goals. Well, whether that's home ownership, as you correctly alluded to in the UK, or whether that's just being able to buy a holiday every year and take their, their kids on holiday. So yeah, so th there's a lot of pain points. A lot of pain points. A lot of pain points. Okay, so let's um, pause for a moment and just recap all of that, because I suppose what I'm hearing as a totality is that we're talking about financial security, financial health as a total. And what often happens is that the rent is actually a major proportion of your financial outgoings. I don't know what the statistic is, but I would presume it's at least 50% of your salary is probably going on rent. Is that right, Chris? Am I on, on it with that one? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, it's probably just over that. It's probably closer to 60, 65% if you total up rent and, and bills and, and housing costs. Wow. Then yeah, it's a significant proportion. So, you know, whatever rent is or your rental is a significant component of your monthly outlay or your yearly outlay of your salary, which means it's one of your biggest financial considerations. And then all of the sort of cascading effects that you have from that situation, which you've highlighted, you know, knowing about entering into these contracts, where to find the money to get a deposit, the contractual process, what that means, usually a risk that you're assuming from the contractual process, making changes, living in the home, et cetera, et cetera. And, and I suppose that brings me back to when I asked you earlier, what is Canopy? And you said, we're an ecosystem. You didn't say we're an insure tech. You didn't say, oh, we're a fintech. You said you're an ecosystem. Now, I understand the way that Canopy works is that Canopy primarily is offering a, an insurance product, right? But it also does not only insurance product, but also does a financial product. So there's multi-layer, because I suppose what I'm hearing here is you've identified that there are many needs, not just the insurance product. But maybe tell me about that. You tell me what Canopy is. I'll only tell you. Um, insurance, financial system. That's fine. It's good to know you've looked us up all ahead of us, to be fair. But no, we, um, I guess, to your point, what is the ecosystem, right? What is an ecosystem and what do we mean by it? Well, an ecosystem is effectively bringing together partnerships with a combined or shared goal, right? That's what an ecosystem is. What, what that means for us is that we effectively bring together on our platform or within our ecosystem, really great products, tools, services that fix or at least alleviate some of those rental pain points. So what that means, I guess, inherently for us is that we're based on a partnership model, okay? We don't actually generate much of the innovation to fix those pain points individually because arguably if we did that there are too many pain points we wouldn't be focused enough as a business we wouldn't have the ability or the skill set to be broad enough to be able to fix all those pain points so what that means is we partner with other great providers who do fix those pain points so i guess what does that look like we we understand the rental journey we understand the pain points and for each one of those pain points we typically then look at the market there's no shortage of amazing tools nowadays. It's one of the benefits of today's world with startups and VC funding is there's no shortage of great products, tools, companies who are offering solutions. And the benefit of that is that they are focused on their solution. Primary example is the deposit, deposit alternatives, deposit replacements. There's various different providers of insurance-based or loan-based provisions. Great companies, great brands, great products. We don't need to do that. We don't need to offer that product. What we do need to do is find out who the best providers in the market are that are going to talk to that rental demographic and then offer them up to renters when they best need them. Now, that means that we're not unfocused. It actually switches our focus to being bringing them together in the most coherent way and offering them up to renters. 
in the best way possible. So we might work with, pick a number, we might work with a hundred different partners if we're trying to fix a hundred different pain points. But actually that doesn't mean it has to look like a confusing jumble sale of products and services on our platform. By understanding a renter, we can actually tailor them to just seeing what's critical for them at the exact point in time in their personalized circumstances. And that's where you get this right place, right product, right time sort of mentality on the platform. So it's a beautiful user experience for any renter that's using Canopy because actually they're not going to see a jumble sale. They're going to see what's relevant to them. And the relevance is obviously built through data, right? You lift the lid and we're a data-driven company. We know where somebody is on their rental journey. Are they just about to start looking for a property? Have they just moved into a property? Are they one or two years into their tenancy? But we also obviously understand their credit score from their referencing. So if somebody has a poor credit score with maybe two or 300, it's not right to serve them up with offerings that they could get a loan, but that loan is going to require an 800 credit score. They're probably going to go for the loan. They're going to go through the whole process and then they're going to be rejected. And that can be so easily avoided by just not offering them something that isn't suitable for them in the first place. And then also we know other trigger points, right? So we could know that somebody has said a rental preference is they live at home with their kids or they have a pet, right? And they need to look for a property with a pet. And that enables us to just offer slightly more personalized products and services and tools to, to that individual. So we can really help them out without it appearing like a jumble sale. So great. So I'm getting to understand now a bit about the way that you're, you're taking data from your ecosystem and your users, effectively like looking at the way that your users are behaving and the needs that they have, and then serving them with appropriate needs to address whatever it is within the buying process or the, the home, like, so I, don't, I want to call it ownership, but home experience, we call it that. Okay. Yeah. So if we get specific about this, so as I understand it, you're using APIs to grab that data from open banking. So you can see potentially like their spending habits, like the way they are operating, helping them from that develop a credit score, be more transparent with their credit score so that then potential landlords who are assessing them can then say, okay, I know this person is a bona fide, financially literate and capable human being. And then making the decision based on that. And then you're tailoring the solutions to give them. Is that correct? Yeah, I guess. So what we've explained so far, I guess, is the, is the ecosystem, right? Is the power of bringing all of those products, tools, and services together to make somebody's life a little bit easier, but to get more out of renting, essentially. The, the two key areas for us are, how do we bring renters into the platform, right? And for that, what we did was we looked at all of those pain points and we said, well, there are two pain points, which we are going to solve for ourselves. We're not going to partner. We're going to do them ourselves. We're going to own those products, develop those products as a USP, as an innovation driver within the industry, but also to own essentially an acquisition route into our business, into our funnel. Allows us the flexibility to obviously adapt to changing demands. Now, what we did was really, really simply, we said, right, what happens at the point of move that we can innovate in and, and is ripe for disruption? And what's happening at the point of living? So not everybody moves every year. So if we just focus on that, then we're going to miss a bunch of people that we could help while they're living in the property, especially if they're living in the property for 10, 12 years. So we started with the point of move and the most antiquated old fashioned industry within that whole process was referencing. So when you go to rent a property, you have to undertake references. Now that's typically in the old fashioned way was uploading pay slips, uploading bank statements. Now that's a pretty intrusive data 
trust point whereby you're just uploading payslips that are going to land on somebody's desk and potentially get thrown in a bin or not shredded. And you lose a lot of ownership of your data. You also hear back maybe four or five days later with an outcome, but you've got no information. You don't know why somebody's accepted or rejected you. You don't get any information back. And it would take, as I say, it would take a long time. So the incumbents were fairly established, big volume players working with most of the letting agents in the UK market and would pretty much just have bums on seats to deliver that service. Now, the prevalence of open banking and obviously APIs allowed tech players, so not existing incumbents within referencing, but actually tech players to come in and say, well, we can do that better. So we have deep API links with Experian to do credit checks that take seconds. We use open banking to facilitate all of those nervous transactional-led details, uploading of income profiles, uploading of previous rental payments and, and verifying affordability. All of that can now be done via open banking. And, and our app can undertake an entire instant reference within three or four minutes rather than the four days. Wow. Now, that was an innovation that was ripe for renting. The, the cost of that, especially after the tenant letting fee ban, which came in, which said, uh, letting agents and landlords couldn't pass the cost on to a renter, which is great. However, they were always going to pass it on in a hidden fee somewhere along the lines, but it was still an expensive process. And that was because it was manual and bums on seats delivery. Whereas actually, again, making it pretty much fully automated enables companies like us to really cut the cost down, right? Now, there's always going to be a requirement for manual bums on seats intervention because fundamentally you can only do so much and you should only do so much automated i think anybody that thinks that digital solutions can solve everything i think we're a long way from that and i think a lot of people don't also want that you know there's always a requirement to have manual touch points and people doing things within the cycle but we can do we have around about an 80 percent connection rate with open banking superb pretty high but it also means about 20 percent of people don't want to go through open banking. And at the moment, they upload their payslips. So there's still a requirement for people to obviously look at that manually. We also need a team to offer support and guidance. You know, we've got an app which guides people through the process, helps them to understand what things like open banking are and why they can use it. And that's why our open banking connection rates, for example, are probably higher than industry average. But also, if people want to find out what the next step is, as I said, the whole process is fraught with uncertainty. Somebody can phone us and, and find out how to complete their reference super easy, right? We've got people there who are able to answer the phone and guide people through it. So as I say, there's a junction between digital automation and a personal touch, which is really important to get right. Fundamentally, that's an acquisition route for us. So we undertake those references and, and we've, we've definitely innovated in that market. You said there was two. There's digital references, big one. Yeah, and then the second. I've got reference. a feeling I know what the second one is, but um, I would. Should we do a little game? Can I figure it out? Go on then. Go on then. Is the second one deposits? No, no, it's not. Is it not? <laughs> no. Damn. Okay, we'll edit that out. No, no. So, um, <laughs> so deposits are essentially a point of move, pain point, right? You only really experience that when you're at the point of move, and and they are a big pain point. And we did, by the way, and and you're not wrong. We we did have a product in the market which was a deposit-free alternative insurance product. We actually pulled out of that product because it didn't fit this core, which was we're a partnership model. We do the two things that we do well. So referencing and the other one is rent tracking, which I'll talk about in a minute. They're our acquisition routes, but actually everything else we do is partnerships. We kind of don't really, at this point in time, we don't really want to own any of those products ourselves because 
we want the flexibility, <laughs> a bit like renting. We want the flexibility to choose who the right partner is to go with, to offer the best solution to the renter, not just a solution because we've devised it, but actually something that's the most valuable to a renter. Now, what's the most valuable to a renter isn't necessarily price driven, right? It's driven by what a renter wants. Now, typically nowadays, a renter wants less jargon. They want 30 day terms rather than having to sign up to an entire year of policy. And they want digital journeys where they can do things in one click or two clicks rather than having to go to 55 different apps and through 55 different stages of which they've had to print something and sign it. So actually the right solution doesn't have to be cost-based, but it's on us to then work with providers to figure out what the right solution is. Okay. So what is it then? I'm really intrigued then. So it was, you did have deposits as a, a pain point previously, but then you decided to exit that and now you've gone with what? What was the other yeah. second? So we do rent reporting. So one of the biggest areas is credit scores, a subject that most people find incredibly boring, but is actually inherently incredibly important to people's futures. And the education around credit score is sadly lacking at the moment, but it's so important to get your credit score accurate and as high as possible. So what happens with mortgages is that when somebody pays a mortgage, it counts towards your credit score. Every payment that you make counts towards your credit score. Again, renters were left behind. So every single rental payment that somebody makes, it's the equivalent to a renter, but it's never counted historically to somebody's credit score, which is kind of a travesty. As you say, it's a significant proportion of somebody's income. They're paying it typically in full on time every single month. It's a really good indicator. I didn't know this. So rental payment doesn't count towards your credit score. No, not automatically. Not automatically. And so ourselves and there are a couple of other providers in the market have fixed that problem so we have integrations with the cras the credit risk agencies experian equifax etc and we effectively track people's rental payments we test for fraud we test that they're paid in full on time based on their tenancy contracts and we feed that information back up through to equifax and experian which enables them to then appropriately reflect that within somebody's credit score or credit profile, dependent on who we work with. So that actually enables somebody, assuming that you're a renter who is paying in full on time every month, it enables you to actually have that count towards something, right? And makes you visible. So those 5 million people who are currently invisible to the financial services sector, if they track their rental payments for a tenancy, which is typically about 20 months long, they would have a financial footprint at the end of it and a relatively good one. And is this something that's, I mean, you must find this in your research then, is something that's actually really recognised by renters and they, they, they feel this, this pain of not getting this recognised because it seems relatively abstract otherwise to me. Yeah, so it, arguably this is a solution to fixing their pain point, right? Their pain point is they're either underserved by the financial services sector because their credit scores are non-existent, invisible or too low. That's a pain point, right? They're not able to access credit products, et cetera, because actually what they probably do or don't know is that their credit score isn't where it could be. So the solution is to offer them a way of building that credit score up that enables them to access those solutions that fix the pain point. So it is a bit more abstract. You're right in a sense of the solution is probably what they were thinking, but equally it's the solution that they need. And what we need to do and what we're doing, but we need to get better at is obviously educate renters on how they can improve their financial situation and, and what these tools do and why they're so valuable. But part of that is obviously getting that message out. 
and educating the user. And so that's what our second route is. We, we kicked it off actually in October last year. We launched another version of it in January this year, and it's, um, it's going pretty well. It seems to resonate fairly well with renters at the moment. Very interesting. I know, look, the Talent Esports podcast is all about, you know, trying to help uh, understand what goes into creating great organizations and help talent nurture themselves and growing great businesses and understand that. So I'm interested in double clicking on this and understanding how you came to that understanding, because it sounds to me like the heart of any good ecosystem is about understanding all of the constituent players. And we haven't spoke about the landlords yet, <laughs> um, but maybe this will kind of be a nice link into that in some way. Like, how did you figure out and how do you keep up to date with what your customers are needing and what they're wanting? How do you go through that process? Yeah, so it's, 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 an, it's an ongoing process, right? So the product team undertake research, questionnaires, queries, fairly periodically. We do that via social media channels. We do that via email distribution. We do that via getting face-to-face time with some of our renters as well. And just garnering feedback constantly on what are the pain points that you're experiencing? What are you currently doing? How are you finding solutions yourselves? To just keep front and center in mind as to always coming back to our mission, like what are the pain points and how are we looking to fix them? And then basically we prioritize the orders, right? We see what are the ones that seem to come up most often? What are the ones that seem to be the, the highest impact on an individual? And then we look to solve those ones first and foremost. But we also look obviously to the market in general and see what the latest innovations are within fintech and tech companies. How are people building new products and services? And let's get ahead of the curve, right? Let's talk to them. Let's figure out how that might better serve the needs of renters and, and offer that up. So we work on the innovation programs with some of our partners to really figure out helping them to build out the best services, the best sort of innovations, but also using our data and, and what we know about renters to really make that the best and the stickiest product for renters. And we do all that because it's part of our mission. And so that basically dictates our product roadmap. We're always thinking ahead. Let's take this moment then just to ask a little bit of a question. Uh, we talked about the good, how you've listened to it, but you also mentioned earlier that you exited deposits as a product. And I think too often we only focus on successes and pivoting as part of an early company, early stage company is what it is all about, right? You know, no company started off. I mean, think about what Netflix were. They were like DVDs through the door before they became, you know, on demand. So yeah, tell us about that decision to leave the deposit product and why and how bloody hard was it and all of that? Yeah, so that, that's actually a really good question. And you're right, in a sense of it, it's a relevant pivot for us. And, and we, you know, a couple of years ago when, when we were talking about Canopy, that product was always something that we were proud to talk about. And I think at the time, it was a solution and it was something that at the right stage, you know, every business goes through stages, right? Stages in development, stages in growth. And for us at that stage, it was a tool, it was a way of fixing pain points. And since that point, we actually moved further from it. So the reason we pulled out of it was twofold. One was the business model had evolved. You know, we weren't now trying to really fix one or two pain points, we realized from our research and understanding that there are a lot of pain points, but also that a lot of solutions existed in the market. And actually that our ability to really add value to renters, to landlords, to everybody else was to bring it all together and actually fix all of those pain points by partnering. So the business model had evolved away from owning products, albeit we owned the two acquisition products, the rent passport and rent tracking. Actually, the underlying products, we kind of moved away from that for now and said, well, maybe we'll do it in a year and a half, but for now, we're not looking at it. So that was one reason. I think the second reason was 
was actually our understanding of that market by operating in it for 12 to 18 months. We found that an incumbent, which I won't mention names, but you know, the largest provider of deposit insurance within the UK was backed and invested in by a lot of the large letting agents within the UK. And so they were wedded to that platform. So that made it hard for us to grow with significant volume across big providers. But also the uptake of the product with renters, although an incredible value proposition, you know, unlock the money that's in your deposit, pay for one week's rent was the equivalent of the premium that somebody would pay for the insurance policy. And it would mean obviously they didn't have to put down a huge amount of deposit money. So it was a great proposition for renters. But the challenge was getting the renter to buy in was relatively straightforward. But the renter wasn't the only decision maker. There were two decision makers. There was also the landlord because the landlord had to accept this insurance policy in place of traditional cash deposit in their bank account or not in their bank account, but held with the deposit scheme. And that was a very difficult switch, right? Getting the landlord to go, it's okay, Will, instead of this two and a half thousand pounds that I have of yours in theory in my back pocket, actually, I'm going to accept a bit of paper from Canopy that says, if anything goes wrong, we'll cover the cost. That's quite hard. And it meant the purchasing journey was longer and more difficult. And I think that's the reason that in the UK, it wasn't taking off as fast as we thought it would. And therefore, the time, energy and effort that was on our side to administer and build that product and sell that product, as I say, given our business model was also moving away from it, meant that it was the right decision to pull out. And what we've done now is replace that with the incumbent provider that I just talked about, right? So we now work with them. They offer a superb product. And is, was it better than ours? You know, we could argue for days over whether it was better or worse than our product at the time, but they now offer the best product in the market. So we work with them to offer that solution to renters, but it's also enabled us to work with other providers. So we're now no longer wedded to deposit insurance, right? Because we don't have a foot in that door. So what that means is other solutions to deposits have now come out. There's deposit loan companies, et cetera. And we can actually work with them as well now because it doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't cut our product out by working with these other providers. So it enables us to be far more agnostic with the way we build actually solutions for the, for the partner products. Okay. Maybe now the cogs are turning in my brain and something's clicked. If you're using a loan product or you're using any of these insurance products, any of them that were within your ecosystem, they all ultimately will depend upon some type of credit score to know the customer. And so, of course, it makes sense if you're saying to whoever is joining Canopy, join Canopy, we can help streamline and address these issues and get a better credit score and get access to all this wonderful solution that we have for you. Exactly. There's the interplay between everything. And that's the benefit of the ecosystem, right? That it all benefits. And the two acquisition routes for us build the data. So whether it's rent passport or whether it's rent tracking, we need to collect the credit data. We need to collect the open banking data and, and also the demographic data and where somebody's moving from when they're moving to. We collect all of that on the way in. And that enables us to surface those right products at the right point in time for those renters. Wonderful. Okay. And oh, I recently had a guest on the show from Buckle. I don't know if you heard of Buckle. They're out in the US and they're doing insurance for the gig economy, but they really don't, he doesn't call himself with InsureTech anymore. That's where they started. Now they're more as a, you know, a financial fintech provider because they also have this credit score that they create for their drivers who could then go out and 
get loans for their cars, which are an intrinsic part of the journey. Of course, insurance is a major part of it. And it strikes me when talking with them, it was very similar to you, is that the value is really in understanding the customer and what the need of their customer is and how they can then serve them the best way through that and the power of the ecosystem and how, how attractive that is uh, in an all-encompassing offering. Cool. You have chosen a devilishly difficult area of the market because um, you've got a double-sided market. You've got your renter, but then you've got the, the you know, the the grumbly landlord who, um, you know, like it might be a mom and pop is like, you know, this don't want my credit score to get messed around with. So how do you deal with that in your business model, like this double-sided model and making that work? That must be difficult. And I'd like to just talk through like that experience of that. Yeah, well, it's, it's interesting. So we, we formed a, a multi-sided platform. As you rightly know, the majority of platforms are two-sided, right? And so for us, so with Uber, it's drivers and people who want a cab, you know, but for us, it's now multi-sided. In- inherently, the platform is connecting these amazing partners with renters. So the mission and the foundation of the company was built on improving the lives of rental households in the UK and then and then globally, ultimately. But by developing and going into referencing, the real sweet spot with that was that innovation within that old-fashioned market enabled us to fix a pain point, not just for renters, but also for letting agents and landlords. As I say, most of the time, the letting agent or the landlord was paying a huge amount of money and having to waste a lot of time on that process. And so obviously we've cut that out and that's far more beneficial to the rest of the market. We've also sort of changed it fairly substantially. So by being able to do it fairly instantly, and for us, it's called the instant rent passport, actually you can bring forward the reference into something called pre-qualification, right? And that really helps the whole market. So if I'm a renter and I want to go look for a property, let's say I want to go through one of the property portals on the market. I want to look for a property. I see the one I want. I click on it. Well, in a dream world, I'd be able to add my Canopy Instant Rent Passport. It's going to take me two minutes to do it. Why does it benefit me as a renter? It benefits me as a renter because I'm going through as a hot lead, right? So I'm putting myself effectively at the top of the pile. When it lands on the desk of a letting agent who's letting that property, what they're seeing is they're seeing a ton of different leads, especially in the market. It's a hot market. So they're seeing a ton of leads for that property. But two or three of those 25 leads on their desk have attached a canopy rent passport, right? And it's been free to this point, no cost for the letting agent, no cost to the renter. The, the instant rent passport is completely free. So they're looking at it and they're going, well, hey, I could be showing all of these people that I know nothing about around the property, or I could show these three around first because I know their affordability score is there. I know they're ready to move in. I know that they've got their credit score in place. So actually they're a better bet. So you're increasing efficiency within the letting agent community. And at the same time, you're cutting down their cost. Now, then it comes down to the landlord. So what's the benefit to the landlord? Well, the benefit to the landlord is that through some of our products, such as rent tracking, there's actually a real incentivization to pay your rent on time in full, right? So if anybody was to fall into rent arrears, and there's a significant number of people every single month that really struggle to make their rental payments. Now, if that counted for something, if you knew that by missing your rental payment this month, actually it was going to have a detrimental impact on your credit score, then you would really think twice about missing it. So for landlords, it actually reduces the risk of rent arrears and then future evictions. So it ends up being a solution, which is actually ultimately ended up working for everyone. Although we created it with the renter at heart, 
it's ended up working for the whole of the housing market. And I suppose that's ultimately the beauty of an ecosystem. It should be balanced. There should be a balance of input and output and benefits to everyone. And um, I think there's a lot to be learned from uh, environmental ecosystems about how everybody should flourish when the system is working right. And I suppose that's ultimately, Chris, where I can imagine you've got to continue tweak and think about what your, your incentives are, what your disincentives are to, to everybody in that ecosystem to ensure that there's a right balance that's, that's found. So wonderful. We've got a good understanding of what um, Canopy is doing and where you've come. But I, um, I think now I'd like to sort of just pivot to sort of, you know, talking about, you know, the realities of building this business and your background, because Chris, you were a CFO before and now you've become a CEO, correct? So just tell us about your journey into the big, bad world of startups and scale-ups and such. So how did you come to this mission? Uh, yeah, sure. So, um, so I had an interesting, uh, relatively interesting journey, I think, but essentially uh, my first job straight out the gate from university was, it was an interesting learning curve actually. So like a lot of people, I applied for a bunch of graduate schemes and I was very fortunate that I got on the Aldi graduate scheme, the supermarket chain, which at the time came with a, a nice car, a big salary. And I was pretty grateful to have it. I pretty quickly learned within a few weeks that actually what I thought was important, which was money and a nice car and having all of those sort of glitzy things actually wasn't the most important thing. So for me, it was a really nice shot in the arm straight out of the gate um, into the world of work to really sort of reassess what was important to me. And ultimately it was doing something I loved doing. It was not I realized I didn't like retail. It wasn't the company. It was I didn't like retail. It wasn't my my thing. And so I took an opportunity to then step away from there and try something else. I then joined uh, Unilever, so big global consumer goods giant. Undertook SEMA there, so I joined a finance program there and grew through various different roles. And I think the really great thing about that company, to be perfectly honest, was as a corporate, they offered early in your career an unbelievable training and education and development scheme, which enabled you to really grow as an early point in your career. But also finance for me was a really interesting part of the business because actually within a corporate finance, and I guess to some extent other support functions, but finance more than any other has a real unique position whereby you were able to float around the business doing different roles with different functions. So for example, you could be working with a marketing team, then the supply chain team, then the sales team. And there was always a finance person embedded within each one of those teams. So what that enabled me and, and, and other finance people to do, and I'm sure it's the same in other corporates, was to really build a pretty good commercial understanding as to what's good practice for each one of those functional areas, right? How does it work and what does success look like? So that kind of built a pretty unique and broad acumen that I think most finance people within corporates then can gather. The other nice things we felt about working for them was that the office had a wonderful Ben and Jerry store within the entrance for a had a Tony and Guy hair salon in the office and uh, and, and that was all lovely as well. But but fundamentally, it was it was that ability to very early in your career get pretty broad exposure to to the wider business. I think from there, I joined Booper Global. So this was a obviously a, a big global insurance company, but um, predominantly Booper Global focused on high net worths and expats. So people who needed multi-jurisdictional uh, health insurance. Really interesting, like a superb brand, but lots and lots going on behind the scenes with legacy systems that needed updating. I think the key thing for me that, that was very fortunate about that company was that anybody who wanted to grab the ball by the horns and you know shove their head a bit above the parapet and all those other great adages, it was a great place to do it. You know, if you were 
switched on, keen, then they offered you every opportunity to prove yourself. So quite, again, early on in my career, I was able to lead the digital proposition, the finance side of the digital proposition um, rollout for them and an entire new change of their entire product suite. I set up and launched the business within the Middle East when they needed to set up an office in Dubai. And that was everything from hiring the exec team through to getting the office space, getting the regulatory authorities, etc. And then I did the same thing for the Greater China office, which was based out of Hong Kong. So a really interesting role, big roles quite early on because they offered those opportunities up, which was great. I think I quite quickly got to a point though where corporates were amazing for that learning and education but actually for me i wanted to get into i guess startups so startups had become a thing so when i was at university it was all about corporates graduate schemes and actually over the last 10 years i guess startups have really become far more prevalent innovation has become more prevalent vc money to be honest has also become more prevalent and that's kind of seen this migration of great talent into smaller businesses And to me, that felt really appealing, right? There was that entrepreneurship. There was the element of, I kind of felt like I understood the best elements of how a business worked and and what good looked like from those uh, sort of broad finance roles, but also really understanding every commercial impact. So bringing it back to what's important, it's the numbers, right? As much as we can say, and I hate the word, but when people say to me, I I don't get numbers, I don't understand them, I don't need to understand them. That is complete rubbish, to be perfectly honest. You know, every business thrives and survives by numbers. And so you need to understand a number. And it felt to me like I just wanted to get into a smaller business, sort of scratch that itch. And it was really interesting. I I found it really hard to get into into a startup from a corporate. I had great experience across these corporates for sort of 12 years or so, but nobody would offer me a role within startups, predominantly because the view was you've worked in corporates, you're slow moving, you're old fashioned, you don't know what it means to be in a a small business. And they were taking people who had less experience, they'd worked for smaller companies, but but arguably, you know, my view at the time is very much, and it still is, is not to look down on those corporate careers. Yes, as a corporate entity, they're relatively slow moving. If you get 2% growth, it's a success for the year rather than 200% growth. But it should all be about the person, right? And the personal traits that somebody exhibits. If they've worked in a corporate, actually, that can be a super positive. You know, they've seen what best practice looks like. They've had incredible learning and development. If the personal traits of that person means they're probably not suited to a corporate and they can now apply that in the best way in a small business, that's what I think we should be looking for rather than diminishing somebody's background because of the the environment they've operated in. Nice link, Chris. Let's double click on there for a moment because I think, you know, talent equals the name of our podcast is all about defining what talent is and uses the word traits could easily interchange that with the sort of talents of an individual. What have you come to understand and believe about the traits that make somebody successful and able to transition from corporate to smaller startup? Yeah, I think uh, there's actually, yeah, I've thought about this quite a lot actually in the last few months. And there's a few things. So I think positivity is, is absolutely out there. It's, it seems silly, but you need positivity. You know, you, the, you're faced with a lot more challenges in a small business than you are in a corporate. And so positivity, but also an element of resilience to deal with those challenges is of the utmost importance, to be perfectly honest, and probably the one key factor as to whether somebody will be successful. Can they deal with the challenges that are thrown at them when they mean a lot more than they, than they would in a corporate environment? I think the other thing is, is getting stuff done, right? There's sort of the ability to grab something by the horns and go, 
yeah, I just want to get that done. You know, nothing happens unless we make it happen. And if you don't have that attitude and that drive within a small business, it's not going to happen by itself. And so you've got to make it happen. And, and, and fundamentally, you can make it happen. And I think the third thing is probably an element of emotional intelligence, right? And, and that's critical. Personal relationships are so much more important in a small business. That's kind of one of my key learnings coming out of corporate was that the relationship with your team is a much smaller team, a much more tight-knit team. The challenges are much harder. The lows are much lower and the highs are much higher. So being able to control your own self, but also to really understand what other people are going through and adjust your sort of outward approach based on that is important, both internally and externally, right? So partnerships, not as easy to strike up. When you're in a corporate, everybody wants to work with you because you're a big company, you've got that weight behind you. When you're a small business, you really need to understand the needs of the other party to say, well, why should they be putting time, effort, money, and resource into partnering with you as a business? So I think emotional intelligence is probably that third thing. I say they're the the three key things, I think, for me. Cool. Resilience, action, emotional intelligence. And actually, you know, isn't it interesting that I'm seeing this similar kind of almost a a reverse type of snobbery that, that used to be the inverse. People wanted to move from small organizations to big. It's actually gone the other way. And it's something I, I notice actually. But touching on values, anybody who listens to the show knows that I'm a values-driven headhunter. It's still a relatively new theme in recruitment, but increasingly gathering speed because there's a recognition that values are the way that we see the world, values are the way that we apply our intelligence and our capabilities to overcome. Uh, they're like the, the fundamental operating system that we have. And competencies and skills can be added on top of that, but those underlying operating system is very difficult to change. And certainly in small organizations, you don't have the time to change them. So it's imperative that you find them early on, they match the values. It's not to say we disregard competencies, because sometimes there's a need for those, but those values. So, and resilience, 100% behind that. It's actually one of the ones we look for universally here. Action is, you said, I think you used the word, you know, energy, and you know, we wrote down the word urgency in there as well. Needing to have the, the determination to push things and make them happen with a type of agency and independency, which is really important. And um, you, you talked about emotional intelligence as well. That's so difficult. So how do you interview for those things when you're attracting people? How do you communicate those things, Chris? I'm, I'm fascinated to know like, what you apply there. I guess it boils down a little bit to your culture, first and foremost, right, as, a, as an organization. And it's really hard to develop a culture in an organization, I think. And ultimately, you want to hire people who are going to fit within that organization that you work in. So you kind of need to set out what is it that you want to achieve? What do you want the team to be like? What, as you say, cultural traits do you want them to exhibit? And that has to be the start point. I think that in itself is hard. I think when you find a founder-led business, often that culture and, and the values that they exhibit feed through the organization from that founder directly, right? For good or for bad, it, it feeds through and it emanates. Now, we had an interesting situation at Canopy whereby our founder for health reasons back about six months ago. And I took on the role from CFO to CEO. And that led to a bit of a vacuum, a bit of a void within the cultural space, right? And building that culture is then incredibly hard, you know, with challenges with the likes of lockdown, which hasn't been easy because we're not having face-to-face meetings anymore. We're challenged by scale and growth. We're adding a significant number of people in the last year to the team, and they've never even met each other face-to-face. 
And so building a culture has then been really, really hard. Now, we're not there yet. And to be fair, we've probably taken our eye off the ball for the last six months to really just focus on growth of the business at the detriment of culture. But we need to obviously now bring that back to the forefront. And we are doing, we're starting to try and understand what is it that people want. But how we set that then has to be not top down. It has to be driven. Yes, there's some, it's probably three things, right? So what do we need to exhibit as an organization? Clearly we deal with data, right? And, and so trust and integrity has to be somewhere within our value set. Then it has to be about the leadership. So as we've said, you know, the values that I really adhere to, you know, one of them is that action, that bias for action. Well, that will probably feed through into our values as well. But then the rest is more inherently, what do people think of? What do they believe in when they're working at Canopy? What do they like about Canopy? And then helping to build that up with the rest of the team. So when we're recruiting, we're kind of trying to keep all of that in mind, right? What sort of fundamentally, because it's a relationship driven business and we're still small at the moment, what's the personality type? So the first interview we'll do with somebody typically will be a half hour coffee style, whether it's virtual or in person, relaxed, informal interview to test somebody's ability to engage in conversation, fit within the team. Have they got similar personality traits? We're all very different, but some of us are ex-sportsmen, some of us love VR headsets, etc. However, there are similar personality traits as to will we all engage and get on together? Can we talk to each other like humans? That's a really important first meeting that we have. If somebody passes that, we then get into more of the normal, let's dig into your background, let's dig into your competency, your ability to do the task at hand from your experience. But that initial part is so important. Will we be able to work together? As I say, because the personal relationships are so much more heightened importance within the business. Some Big, gnarly challenges there. I mean, if a lot of the founders I speak to very much recognize the difficulty of putting out the fires of, you know, that are ongoing day to day, starting to look out ahead in a couple of months, quarter, two, three ahead to keep the growth going, bringing the money in from investors, while at the same time trying to keep the underlying culture and health of the organization well and trying to define those points. So it's a, it's a complex role that you've got and um, a complex set of challenges. I think, honestly, like as a headhunter now for 20 years, values were never spoken about. They then came through as a, a sort of a good thing that you do, uh, kind of were given a bit of a piecemeal type, you know, understanding and a sort of attention, but are recognizing as the war for talent is really heated up, that actually values stand at the forefront of actually how you attract people, how you communicate your message, how you ensure that good culture happens. So. The journey you're on is a, is a wonderful one. I know that uh, it's a difficult one, very difficult. And I know most of the founders we've had on the show have talked about it. And when they've maybe got more mature, they've really been able to lay those down. But I know it's a valuable process to go through because as a headhunter and as a value-driven headhunter, I know the, the power of it when it comes to attracting talent is being foremost focused on what, who you guys are as a group um, and who you are as a team. Because I've definitely discovered that you know people really work for other people you know it's the old cliche that you don't go to war for your country you go to war for the people who are standing around you and you try and keep each other alive and that's really the you know what it almost boils down to in a company as well um, and that all comes from culture and people and values so i'm going to be interesting to, to sort of come back and hear how you've done all that chris in the future but being mindful of time i just want to know kind of what's next for canopy and where you're at now and where, where you're looking to go for in the future and what people should look out for so we have 
been focusing very much on growth, as I say, detriment to some other things, but fundamentally, we in the last six months have been really just double downing on on the growth of the platform and bringing users in. Now, what that has meant for us has actually been fairly successful, to be honest. So we've been growing around about just around 15% in terms of users joining the platform every month, month on month growth for the last seven months. Number of letting agents, obviously, so those who are referencing has grown by about 20% month on month for the last seven months, about four letting agents every day currently signing up to the platform. So we kind of really feel like we've delivered some growth and, and we've got foresight into that over the next year. The next thing for us is really on building out that sweet spot of how do we offer those right products at the right time. So we have a ton of relationships, right? But really offering the compelling products at the right point in time to a user, that's what we're doubling down on at the moment. So at the moment, there will still be an element of not perfection in terms of what products are being offered to people. And over the next six months, we want to make sure that that experience is is great. The other thing that we really want to do is well, and I guess just to add to that, so the reason that we do that is because utilization of products, yes, it's our business model in terms of we, we earn revenue from it, but fundamentally, how can we be sure we're actually fixing pain points? Well, if nobody's using any of the products we're offering them, we're not fixing a pain point. So we need to get that utilization up. And the other one is financial education. And this is quite a big one for me, I think, over the next six months is there are so many great tools, products out there in the market right now that offer solutions to lots of things, even beyond renting. And the key thing is giving somebody the tools and the ability to make better financial decisions for themselves, right? So then they're actually able to have a better understanding of credit scores, for example, and then they might go and look at ways to improve it. They understand what moves their credit score, or if they're looking to save, who on earth knows what an ISA is versus a LISA versus a first-time buyer mortgage ISA? You know, there's so many different things that actually some financial education, I think, is, is, is critical. And companies like Canopy, we deal with, as I say, the, the demographic largely is 18 to 35. There are additional people and we'll look to serve additional needs as well. But they're really, really young and they are learning and they're developing over that time period. Rather than just offer them products and services, how can we guide them, nudge them, give them some education along the way that helps them to make those better choices, whether it's through our app or just in their everyday lives? And so what we're going to be building out is more financial education on the platform. You know, it's not a paid product. It doesn't make us money, but it's the right thing to do. And it helps to sort of meet our goals, right? Which is to help people live better lives and better financial lives. So that's for us a big initiative that we're going to be pushing in the first half of this year as well. Awesome. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing that development. And um, it's really great to hear the, the, the reality of startups and the, the cut and thrust and the uncertainty, but the, the winning and the, the failure, it's, it's all in there. I mean, I think uh, I've spoken to so many founders and on the show, we've talked about the same thing. The highs are great and amazing, where the lows are low. And unfortunately, that probably happens two or three times a day. At least, yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's a hell of a journey to go through. And, um, but what you're doing is, is meaningful. It's trying to help people with financial freedom and renting. And fundamental you need is to, to have a home and a roof over your head. So great to see that and look what you guys are continuing to do. I mean, finishing up the show, one of the questions I'd love to know is really just get underneath the sort of hood with you a little bit, but just three favorite books that maybe informed your journey, Chris, to where you are. And um, that can be ones that are historic and ones that you've read from childhood or ones you've more recently read that sort of help us understand a bit about you, but you also would love to share with the world. So yeah, do you have three books you'd like to share with us? I do actually, but I'm going to 
very boringly. I've actually got them on my desk right now, uh, so I know exactly what they are. Yeah. <laughs> and and, and I and probably say these, these are these are not old ones. These are ones that I've probably read in the last year and a half or so, and I think all of which have been pretty pertinent to helping me with the mindset of where we go as a company. So I think the first one is is Atomic Habits by uh, by James Clear. So probably something that a lot of people mention. Great book, really, really insightful. The other one is The Power of Moments by Chip Heath and Dan Heath. That is actually broader than just business. That's the power of understanding those moments and, and understanding what they mean. You know, we often forget about the little things that happen and we only ever remember the big things, right? What happened at the start, what happened at the end? It's not the journey. We remember the moments. So how do we create those moments? And then the other one is a book called Contagious by Jonah Berger. And I think this is an area that I've been a bit more interested in recently is more of the behavioral science side. So within businesses and within consumer base, obviously people exhibit certain trends and behaviors. Now, understanding those behaviors is pretty important. So what creates a tribe of individuals? What creates resonance with somebody to write a testimonial because they love what you guys are doing? What creates a viral share opportunity? What kind of triggers the behaviors in somebody that they really become a, an advocate for what you're doing and for your brand? And so Contagious, and there's another book actually called Tribe, which I can't think who, who writes that right now, but there's just some really interesting books around the space. I think Tribe is Seth Godin. It is. It is. Big fan of uh, Seth. Yeah, so great. Some really lovely ones in there. Atomic Habits. Um, you never rise to the level of your goals. You always fall back to the level of your systems. I think that's the way he puts it. And um, I think that's a beautiful one for us to recognize that we have to have great systems around us to grow our habits. The Power of Moments I haven't read, nor have I Contagious, but um, we'll note those ones for everybody in the, um, in the show notes as well. Brilliant. Well, um, I'd like to say thank you so much, Chris, for your time today. Anybody out there listening, Chris, where could they find you if um, they're interested in reaching out to Canopy and or reach out to you to have a chat about the business and what you're doing? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so LinkedIn, Chris Hutchinson, but also to be fair, direct email. It's always open. So chris.hutchinson at canopy.rent. Anybody can send me a note. I'm more than happy to engage. Excellent. And well to you as well. Thank you so much for having me on. An absolute pleasure. Brilliant. Well, Chris, wishing you all a wonderful day. And thank you very much. You too. Take care. So if you enjoyed this episode, please remember to subscribe or leave a review on wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us. So thank you very much. We also have a newsletter on our website, talentequals.com, so you can keep up to date with all of the things we're doing here at Talent Equals and the amazing guests that we have coming up this year.